A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. It comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. So this guy on Twitter, let's call him Elamine. No, let's call him Larry. Larry said, Jesse, bruv, you're not the little guy anymore. Canada Land cannot play the scrappy startup card at this point. And I thought, okay, that's interesting. Like, okay, we are five years into this now. And, you know, for people in this bubble that we inhabit, for fellow journalists and media people, maybe for our audience, for for many of you, we might seem like a stable going concern. We may be a part of your regular informational diet. And I, I guess the idea starts to form that we are on the same scale as other news brands that are also part of that daily informational diet. Well, let me tell you about the week I've had. This actually started last week, right before Halloween. Our site was attacked. They, whoever they are, they they pushed us offline with this massive, sustained DDoS attack, which is like this brute force assault on the site. They flooded us with traffic and rendered the site, every article we have ever published, unusable, unreadable for almost three days. We got back online. It looks good for now. We are told that if we want 100% firewall safety against future attacks, it's going to be like $3,000 US a month. We're trying to find a cheaper solution than that. Then, then, this Tuesday, the WE movement, 
this multi-million dollar international organization, which was the subject of a recent investigation of ours, they sent us a libel notice, which is the first thing that you do when you are preparing to sue journalists for libel. They also launched this whole media campaign, which in part is an attempt to discredit our journalism. They bought Google ads, they launched a website, they made a video, and they did something that I don't think anybody in Canada has ever done before when investigated by the press. They hired a retired judge to privately judge our investigation and issue this unofficial, non-binding verdict on our journalism. And they released that. I will have more to say about that later. What I can tell you for now is that we would not have published that story on the WE movement if we did not believe that it was 100% accurate. Look, this is not a wrestling match. This is not an exchange of diss tracks. We're doing journalism. And when somebody says, you got it wrong, what we need to do is not grandstand, but go through every complaint that they have made and see if there is any merit to any of it. And if so, we will clarify or correct. And otherwise, we will stand by our work. Even if that means years of litigation against this WE organization that is about a hundred times larger than us. What else happened this week? Somebody started a Twitter account. They're calling themselves Walter Cronkite. And the sole purpose of this Twitter account seems to be uh, flaming our advertisers and saying, why are you advertising with fake news Canada land? Uh, It was the podcast festival this past weekend. The whole podcast industry was in town for the Hot Docs podcast festival. As I've mentioned, this year, the festival was sponsored by the CBC. And for the first time ever, we were not invited to even pitch. So we have this show that we are very proud of called Thunder Bay, and we want as many ears on this as possible. We want a large audience worldwide to listen to this. And so when the podcast industry comes to town, that is a golden opportunity for us to turn people onto the story that we think needs to be heard, but we were not invited inside. So we hired a chalk artist to promote Thunder Bay on the street outside the theater. The CBC has $1.5 billion in annual revenue. Canada Land has significantly less than 1 million. So no, Larry, I do not consider Canada Land to be a scrappy startup. I worked at a scrappy startup. Startups usually have $1 to $5 million to play with. So we are in fact much smaller than a scrappy startup. I know that to a lot of people, we seem like we're a thing. But this thing could be gone tomorrow. We are considered a problem by entities that dwarf us. And it seems that there are people out there who are trying to shut us up. So I'm here asking you for $5 a month. We do not quite yet have what we need to put our reporter, Jaron Kerr, on staff. But I can tell you that dozens of sources have come forward since that first story that Jaron reported on We. And much of what they're telling us at this point looks like it does, in fact, need to be made public. We think you need to know this stuff. Jaron is doing that work. We are all here doing that work for as long as you are making that possible. For today and seven more days, I am asking you because we need it. Go to patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Ira Wells. Jesse. Walrus contributor, English professor at the University of Toronto. That's right. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming here for the first time. Been reading you for a while. Today we are going to talk about Tony Clement's unwanted penis. The marketplace of ideas. It's running out of merchandise. Our guide to the monk debates. And... Ontario Proud goes national. Are they a deceptive shitposting kingmaker or a legitimate expression of free political speech? Can't they be both? Let's grant them both. Okay, we'll get there.
This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Laura Keller, Fraser Scantlebury, Rob Riendo, Nancy Adams, John Wang, Josh Hanf, Tamara Van Horn, and Graham Caldwell. In Canada, we're lucky to have the healthcare system that we do as we often break our arms, patting ourselves on the back for our imagined national identity. When you find that we often describe ourselves as more liberal, apologetic Americans, it's a low and misguiding standard. I donate to Canada Land because it's a voice that reminds us that just because our country isn't known for being as colorful as our neighbors to the south, it does not make our politics and our media above criticism. In IRA, as I mentioned earlier, this episode is brought to everybody by Endy. Since its launch in 2015, Endy has become the leading online sleep brand in Canada. Are you a keen observer of the sleep brand scene? I need at least eight hours a night or I'm just not the same person. And then when you wake up, do you watch the Mattress Wars? Are you are you a bystander? Are you an observer of this? Uh, I'm of this? keenly aware of them, I, I, but I have to keep my own views. I'm a paid, you know, I, I can't get involved in this. Listen, you are a Canadian and so is Endy. Um, they are a Canadian mattress company. And, uh, you know, if that does not stir your patriotic spirit, maybe it uh, appeals to you on an economic basis because this is a 100% Canadian-made mattress. They spare themselves and then you from things like currency exchange and shipping and customs and stuff like that. So they have very inexpensive, very wonderful mattresses. And you can try it out for 100 days. And if you don't like it, you send it back and they give it away to somebody who needs a mattress. Ira, don't say anything. Just think about it. Go to ND.ca. I'll, I'll think about it. I'll Thank think you. About it. That's all I ask. Go to ND.ca and use the promo code CanadaLand to get $50 off of the already very reasonable Canadian prices of ND mattresses. So the Monk debates, you know, not everybody, we think that everybody, it's old news, not everybody knows the Monk debates. How would we describe them? They're this thing that we do here in Toronto where we reach into our tickle trunks and we put on our serious intellectual person costumes and then we act out a delightful show where we present ourselves as, yes, indeed, we do have a serious and consequential public discourse here in Canada. I thought this year's was a revolting debacle. Uh, What did you make of it? Well, I think that the Monk debates, they have to be, you know, the first thing to say is that to see it from their side, this is the A-team. So they're not, if they're going to debate something like populism, as was the case in this debate, they're not going to bring out someone from the Proud Boys. They're going to bring out Steve Bannon. You know, they're going to, they always are looking for the top advocates of their particular positions. And there's a bonus and a drawback to that. The bonus is that you are, you're getting, you know, arguably the most interesting, most informed, most consequential people in these particular areas. The drawback is that they can also end up being something like circuses, which is, I think, part of what we saw on Friday. I mean, when you say the top person, like Steve Bannon is yesterday's man. He's only the top person in terms of that world that he inhabited. He's probably a less influential person than, than perhaps even, even you know, Gavin McInnes or something like that. I think that he's institutionalized in a way. Like, this is what one of my problems, one of my many problems with the Monk debates is that they want someone, they want to be controversial. They want to be on the kind of bleeding edge of the stuff and have like really edgy debates. Wow, that feels dangerous. But like they wait for somebody else to kind of make it safe. And Bannon, you know, has been through this gauntlet of being invited and disinvited. And he has sort of an institutional seal of approval from other American organizations that kind of makes him a defendable choice. Right. So I don't know if Bannon is the most consequential populist in the world. He's the one who's been in the White House. He is actively working with uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary. He's working with Marine Le Pen uh, to some extent and uh, perhaps with uh, who he continually obsequiously called Captain Bolsonaro of Brazil. Called uh, Bolsonaro a bunch of times. 
Did yeah, you catch that? I, I did. Yeah, but he clearly has great deference to these uh, authoritarians and these uh, these strongmen. So he clearly presents himself as, and he appears to be consequential in the movement in a way that that others aren't. To host Steve Bannon in Toronto entails a big social cost, and we saw a lot of that on Friday. I mean, we saw the 12 people who were arrested. We saw the injured police officers. It could have been much worse. Um, so there is, a, there is a social cost to bringing someone like Bannon in. And to me, the, the city felt more divided because of this decision. I understand the inclination on the part of the monk organizers. They want to bring in the most consequential voices. They want to bring in the, the A-team. But there was a social cost to what they did. And I, and I think that, it, again, it could have been much worse. You wrote a great piece about this for The Walrus. And it's got me thinking about this in a bunch of different ways. I've decried this as a spectacle, a carnival, a show. That's pretty rich for me because, you know, I'm also in the business of presenting public conversations, discourse, policy, and amping it up in a way that is going to be entertaining. And, you know, what is the edge of this debate? What's going to make this something that people want to spend time with? And I think that's a good thing to do in a lot of cases because it's how you engage a larger audience with important stuff. I think that you pointed out something about the monk debates, which is, you know, they've staged debates between the people who want to lead this country, you know, in the last federal election. And they're kind of what we've got. They have an incredible amount of clout as a legitimized forum for like actually figuring out big questions about how the world should be run. And why I found this so egregious is because I don't think it was a debate. I mean, a debate would be one assumes would entail two people actually talking about the same thing. And another thing you point out is that they really were not discussing. It wasn't like somebody made an argument and somebody contested that argument in all but like a few very rare kind of fleeting moments. Yeah. they So the monk debates do uh, have a large amount of social prestige in this country. They have taken on this kind of quasi-institutional aura. As you mentioned, our last the last federal election, the federal English language leaders debates, or one of them was, was hosted by the monk debates. Every monk debate that is published, the transcript is published by the House of Anansi Press, which sort of suggests that these are intended to be sort of monumental, serious things that will be valuable years from now. On the other hand, a friend of mine described last Friday's event as think tanks meet WWE, that it's just a sort of spectacular throwdown of, you know, these titans. Um, they make such a big deal about announcing the winner every time as, you know, they, they pull the audience before and after each of these events. The winner is the person who changed the most minds, regardless of how slender the actual lead is. So sometimes somebody will win it, will, you know, take 20% of the vote of the House, but because they, you know, eked out a percentage or two win, they win the debate. Which and Steve is, Bannon won. Well, so this is- uh, Right? This is, uh, a lot of people might still think that. A point of confusion. Yeah. Uh, you tell me if I'm, you know, getting this right. I mean, I think that they essentially created a narrative, right? Where the biggest question in the world right now is which way is it going to go? The way of the establishment status quo right of David Frum, of a George W. Bush cabinet member who, you know, has a certain amount of personal responsibility for the Iraq war, coined the term axis of evil, whatever he represents in terms of the center-right, center-left, American politics. Right now, we're in a debate between that status quo and populism as defined by Steve Bannon, Trump, Bolsonaro, and uh, a dozen other thugs in the world. And that is the big debate in the world today. And we're going to stage that debate in Toronto. And a bunch of Forest Hill and Rosedale Torontonians came and paid up to $200 for a ticket and sat down there and they voted and they said, well, only 28% of us agree with Bannon at the beginning. And then by the end, because of Bannon's incredible intellectual arguments, he swayed enough of them over. They created a narrative. They announced the winner tonight is Steve Bannon. And everyone went home. And then sometime later on Twitter, they said, very confusingly, um, actually, it's a draw. And, you know, Chris Selly, who I really agree with, in all caps yelled, clarify this, you absolute burks. You, <laughs> G 
Jesus Christ. You have created a fucking narrative in which Steve Bannon managed to convince a significant chunk of a room full of genteel Torontonians that he's on to something. You have made a confusing tweet. And now what? You've gone out for tapas? Right. And, it, and, it's a gong show, man. And these kind of clarifications, you know, Steve Bannon supporters will be very receptive to this sort of clarification that, in fact, oh, uh, yeah. you know, uh, so you're right. It does. Because George Soros, of course, was there. I don't know what. Like, you know, it's also familiar, isn't it? Tampering with the votes and elections yeah. being, you know. So let, let's just rewind the tape for a sec. So everybody sits down. At least I actually hadn't sat down. I was still in line when the introductions were starting because the security was so slow due to the logistical nightmare that they had brought upon themselves. They take the opening vote. It's, as you said, it was sided with From, 28% with Bannon, which is itself kind of shocking. Basically, a third of the room were like, yeah, populism is the way of the future. That's a lot of A third of that room came to the debate. Maybe maybe Steve Bannon, that brings out his people and he's got some people here. Possibly. It didn't. Part of the disconcerting and somewhat harrowing thing about these sort of events is that you actually don't know, right? Like you look around the room and you don't, it was, it's impossible for me to know. Yeah. Maybe these, some of these well-heeled Rosedale Toronto people are, you know, big Bannon supporters. I, I really don't know. You know. The Tiki torch march happened afterwards. You weren't invited. Yeah, exactly. I wasn't, I wasn't there. But um, they take the initial poll. They do the debate. Then, as you mentioned, they then announce the winner. They make Frum and, and Bannon wait on stage while there's this sort of, you know, excruciating 10 seconds. And then they announce that Bannon has not only won, but won in a landslide. Like, I think it was, I did the math afterward, and he would have changed about 29% of the minds of the audience, which would have been the biggest upset in Monk debates history. They've never had one that went that far. Right. And that's what people left the room thinking that that had happened. Yeah. And as you've said, they later sort of tweeted out this correction, but obviously the conspiratorial-minded you know, sort of people who are, who are uh, with Bannon aren't, aren't going to accept that. They're going well, to assume that this is the- how many people are part of our Twitter world? This know, is the uh, mainstream media trying to shut us up again. Yeah, well, I mean, what is the responsibility for that? And, and, you know, the way that it was presented by the moderator, like, here we are, good for you. We're all here today to prove that I, a debate is where it's at. And, you know, one other thing that I observed through a lot of the columns about it, you know, the, of course, the Toronto Sun, but others, there is such a disgust for public protest. And the same people who are saying, look at these thugs trying to shut down free expression. Look at these thugs on the street harassing people who are in line to come in here. I, I don't approve of people blocking entrance. I don't think that a forcible blockade against this debate is not something that I support. But only in Canada and specifically Toronto would peaceful public protest not fall under the category of free expression. And the argument that those people are making is an interesting and I would say a much more timely debate than the one that was had on stage. The argument that they're making, which none of these editorials that I read, can we sustain Steve Bannon, let him speak, should he be taken off the stage? None of those engaged really with the question, the debate that was being asserted by the protesters outside, which is this is not a genteel exchange of ideas for babies who've been ripped apart from their mothers or people who have suffered because of the Muslim ban or arguably for the 11 Jews who were slaughtered in a synagogue as part of this populist wave. And if you are creating a forum that suggests that like, hey, we have huge disagreements, but we can all put on suits and shake hands and have a chuckle with each other, that's actually destructive. That debate is not necessarily always a productive thing. That's an interesting debate. I would love to hear that debate on stage. Bannon throughout the debate sounded quite gracious and and thanked the protesters. I think that the protesters didn't do themselves a favor in the way that everyone's a Nazi now. It's not only that Bannon was a Nazi, Frum is also a Nazi. Everyone who attended the debate were Nazis. And as soon as everyone's a Nazi, then nobody is. It just gets totally denuded of its content. It just gets, you know, we talk about normalization. When all of your opponents are just constantly Nazis, it, it loses its force. So who I th- said that, though? The people outside with pizza boxes that said, you know, F you Nazi. And there was a lot of, if you read some of the reporting on the event, people were 
everyone in line was was called a Nazi. I mean, this is the thing with public protests is if somebody is violent, then it was a violent protest. If somebody used certain terms, then the protesters used those terms. I think that there were protesters there. Even some of them who said you are participating in something that shouldn't happen have a legitimate argument. And that is part of free expression. I think that protesters had a legitimate argument. Of course, these groups are unwieldy. People have different – they're not one homogenous unit. But people need to be cognizant of the fact that you can easily play into the caricatures of your side by going too far. I just wanted to say one more thing about how the Monk organization presented the importance of this debate. You mentioned how it ended on this self-congratulatory note of we've done something very important here tonight. Yeah. This is so valuable. And I think that we should talk a bit more about that of what was accomplished, what what did come out of this debate. Sure. Was it Was it important? But they presented itself as a public service was how it was actually presented to the people of Toronto that it was good for democracy, and we can have that conversation. But another thing that's good for democracy is not gratuitously creating confrontations between police and protesters where people are injured and arrested and, and you get these scenes of, you know, the police physically removing people from situations. And they they did appear to lose control a couple of times, so there was definitely some sort of violence on the side of the protesters. Mm-hmm. But it didn't have to happen. It was gratuitous. It didn't... Um, None of it had to happen. It didn't have to happen. This whole thing is like, it's a big, as soon as you invite him, it's like, oh, do you disinvite him? And then, then it's censorship. No one was censoring me at the Monk debates because I wasn't invited because there's no fucking reason to invite me. You know, I think that, that's how this, this whole idea of like, I don't want these protesters telling me who I can and can't listen to. Those are all columnists who are used to being able to tell people, there are people who are used to being able to make decisions about what people can and can't listen to. Really, they're just, they're just angry about who gets to make that decision. The conversation before the debate was all about, should Steve Bannon be disinvited? And that was partly because... The NDP and Charlie Angus were actively saying he should be disinvited. We should cancel this event. The real conversation is not, should we cancel the event? It was, should he have been invited in the first place? It's a very different question to ask. I'll take your question a different way. What was accomplished? I would argue that by accident, the Monk debates between Steve Bannon and David Frum actually were an incredible reflection, kind of a perfect reflection of where we're at politically in the moment, which is to say that Steve Bannon was right for a lot of his opening statement. When Steve Bannon said, you had somebody up there saying, David Frum? Like, what did you do for people? Like, what, what did you and, and the legacy of George W. Bush and that led to the bailout? We're here today not because Donald Trump. We're here today because the system isn't working for a lot of people. That's true. We're here today because millennials are the new indentured servants and, and they are never going to own anything. For a lot of people, that's true. We're here today. The whole reason why this is happening is because people are disenfranchised by what you represent, David, from. And it doesn't really matter whether you're a Republican elite or a Democratic elite. That's true. And Steve Bannon was able to present that side while just kind of like holding no responsibility for the fact that the way they've mobilized is through dividing the country and through overt racism that's had violent impacts. But he he was able to present a populist argument from the right and have that countered with a conservative argument that was about the system's not perfect, but let's keep the system the way it is because it's better than what you people have to offer. And the way in which that reflected the political moment we're in is that to actually have Steve Bannon talk to somebody who agrees with him that the system isn't working for people, but who does not feel that xenophobia and racism and othering people is the solution, but that there might be another solution. It presented a world in which there is no one else who agrees with Bannon that we, populism, what is populism? It's a manifestation of democracy. People actually, a popular movement of people saying, it's not working for us, we need something different. And, and that is the moment we're in, is that nobody seems to be able to present a cogent counter-narrative or a cogent option against these thugs. Look, I think there were positive and negatives to inviting from. I think that you've, you've hit along a lot of the negatives. He's very easy to caricature as the party of Davos, as the elite, the establishment, as Bannon did throughout the evening. 
On the other hand, what from what his conservative credentials bought him is um, a certain level of vulnerability against the kind of attack that Bannon would have would have leveled against the leftist. Um, very hard to call David Frum a sort of mush-minded moral relativist. It's very hard to label Frum as a sort of who's often quite quite Bannon-esque on immigration sometimes actually as a sort of you know soft on immigration as sort of mealy-mouthed uh, multiculturalist and so on. So he so from from is able to have a different kind of argument than someone of the left would have been. And from was quite open about the fact that he's a conservative. He's attacking populism from the right um, and that this is a, uh, that his brand of conservatism is about conserving the best of the liberal democratic uh, tradition. He thinks that our institutions are valuable and that, that essentially the system is fixable. Um, Bannon thinks that it, it should burn. And that, that is the fundamental division between the two. So both Frum and Bannon agree on the, the basic root cause of populism, at least a big one, which is the 2008 financial collapse. Yeah. Others will say that there are other root causes of populism, like social media making us manipulable by foreign actors or um, the abuse of executive privilege or the unwinding faith in our democratic institutions, the fact that nobody goes to church anymore, it belongs to a union anymore, the fact that there's been this great sort of social unwinding. Um, I think that we can have a reasonable debate about which of those causes of populism is most important and most pressing. But you'll notice that nobody makes the case that our debates about populism are a cause of populism, that no one thinks that it was because somebody lost an argument or that we didn't hold an important debate that populism is now taking off. And just as there is no debate that got us into this mess, there's no debate that's going to get us out of it. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction, and build hope. Okay, I told everybody that we're going to talk about Tony Clement's penis. I don't want to be sitting with you here talking about Tony Clement's penis. It wasn't uh, anything I'd ever considered, really. 
but we're recording on Wednesday. Last night was the midterms in the States. And um, amid all of that is when the news broke that um, conservative minister Tony Clement um, is being extorted. He says that uh, he sent sexually graphic pictures to, he made, made a point that a woman who he, uh, he thought it was a consenting woman, he's being extorted for some large sum of money. And what can you do when you're being extorted? But just said, you know, you just reveal yourself. I'm trying to, to kind of sort through my feelings about this because, of course, it's, uh, you know, I've taken a mocking tone in bringing this up and um, that's sort of dominating. And there's stuff to mock. He's like, I- I'm going into treatment. It's like, I don't know what program that, you know, where, right. where, where's that? Was, so I have, to, I have to admit to our listeners that I this is news to me, too. So what did he appear contrite in his? Uh, it's all through. Did he, did he give he, an appearance? Or he released was... a statement. Okay. And, and I think this was all carefully managed. Um, I suspect but don't know that, that it's not an accident that it came out during if it was going to come out. He timed it for the midterms and hoping maybe get a little less. Um, he stepped away from uh, cabinet, but he's uh, still at this point that I'm talking, um, he's still a member of parliament. And before I like fully pile on with the mockery, this is different at this point from what we know from other sexual misconduct stories, even different than Anthony Weiner, which it's, uh, you know, seems to, you know, evoke because at this point, the only victim that we are aware of is Tony Clement and his family. Look, I I had a lunch with the guy once, mm-hmm. um, and he was like, I don't know, like avuncular and uncle-y and, you know, talked too much to the waitress, but not in any kind of a skeezy way at all. But it was just, you know, like, a, it was like lunch in Muskoka. You know, can I interest either of you in, in, in dessert? Oh, absolutely, young lady. What do you have? And, you know, well, this is ice cream sundae. Uh, we, we make our own butterscotch sauce here. Uh, or you could have chocolate syrup. How about both? He was just kind of like this politician-y, you know, very positive. He told me, I'm done with Twitter. It's too mean. I'm on Instagram now because people are nice on Instagram. And let's actually hear this for a second. This is when he was on Commons when Vicky Machamo was one of the hosts. And she asked him, like, how come there's some young women who you like every photo of theirs on Instagram? wanted to know if at Tony Clement CPC is an Instagram bot because you like everything. No, that's me. I know it's crazy. <laughs> oh dear. I, I'm liking too many photos, but I thought that was the whole point. No, I think it is, but it's like, it's one of those things where uh, I have friends who will be like, do you know this Tony Clement guy? Like he liked my photos of, like, of my vacation. I was like, yeah, he's a politician in, in our country. Yeah, that's me liking photos. It's funny. You can find a minute here and a minute there and you just uh, spend it liking photos. And then we're seeing people come on Twitter saying like, yeah, uh, that's where he would look for young women. And I don't know what's true yet, but we have no indication yet that the guy has actually even met any of these women in the physical space. And So what is he accused of doing? He's not accused of anything. He's admitting that he, uh, what did he admit to? I, uh, like that he's a married guy who sent sexually graphic pictures to somebody who he thought was, I mean, even that's just so sad. He thought somebody wanted that and they were just trying to set him up for extortion. I can't help but feel like, ah, like it's just a funny thing about humans that people wake up every morning and do all kinds of efforts and take all all this labor to further their own personal interest and sometimes to do good work for the world. And then they just do something so remarkably stupid, Mm -hmm. you know, and and until I know that he's hurt anybody, I just think this is just like very sad. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I think that that's it's an unfortunate consequence of of just where we're at. I'm interested in the, in the treatment aspect of it. So you mentioned that he is his claim that he's seeking treatment for something. Yeah, he he did not specify what he's he's stepping back from his duties as a, as a uh, in cabinet and from committees. And you know this is this has consequence because he's on some committees where you know having blackmail material on him for you know security reasons is going to be a big problem for him. Uh, so he's stepping back. I think he's trying to like, can I salvage any aspect of my career right. is, is the question right now. And part of the apology dance is you say, uh, yeah. you know, I've uh, I've exerted some really bad judgment here and I will be seeking treatment. And then Andrew Shear says, 
says, well, I, I'm disappointed in Tony Clement, but I'm glad he's seeking treatment. And everyone, yes, treatment, treatment, treatment. Right. Yeah. It's interesting to see the the rituals of how all these things unfold. And I, I remember um, I grew up in Alberta and, and at one point in the, I'm going to say in the mid nineties, Ralph Klein did something that was like borderline abusive, if not actually outright abusive to a homeless person in Edmonton. He like was threw like, change at people in He was shelter. like throwing money at them or something. And it was, it was, you know, it was kind of a gross episode. And and then he woke up the next morning and had this sort of heartfelt press conference in which he admitted that he was an alcoholic and um, that he was going to uh, going to seek treatment. And he'd, of course, everyone knew that Ralph Klein was a drunk since the beginning of time. Like I mean, a this raging was, uh, like, This was not alcoholic. news. This was like not a pre-Rob Ford, like open secret kind of. Uh... But I guess it was the first time that I had seen this this move where, you know, you come out and you accept responsibility that's not for the thing that that's actually under discussion, but it allows you to change the channel and yeah. on. And of course, it, it worked, worked wonders for Klein. Um, I think that people are a bit warier of this technique by now, but uh, it's still it's still the go to uh, the go to move. I keep waiting for one of these guys to just say, "It's none of your fucking business." I'm kind of curious how that would play out. I mean, that's a version of what Trump said, wasn't it? I guess so. I guess so. The difference there is like there there are victims who are are coming forward. You know that changes things a little bit. But if you're talking about like, you know. Consenting, like the, the, I don't care about his fidelity to his. You know what I mean? I, I, I'm just curious, mm-hmm. as a spectator, when one of these people says it's just none of your business. Yeah, I mean, I'd be curious to go back and look at. Uh, I think that conservatives put themselves in in a particularly tricky situation sometimes because they do come out and take pro-family stands, and and that, so I'd be curious to see, you know, go back and look at, at Clement's own rhetoric on this. I mean, I think that they're particularly vulnerable to accusations of hypocrisy. Yeah, but um, I don't know if that's the case. Ira, on this program, we duly note things, things that deserve to be duly noted, things that popped up in the press that maybe didn't get as much attention as they should. Do you have anything for us today? I do. I would like to duly note that people on the left in Canada should pay a great deal of attention to an opinion piece that came out um, in the New York Times on Sunday by Michael Tomaski called The Democrats' Next Job, Bury Supply Side Economics. The point of this piece was that we need a story to tell about economics and particularly economic growth um, that can counter the supply side cliche that has taken root so deeply that it is now sort of sacrosanct, even though most people understand that supply side economics doesn't work. So supply side economics, you remember supply side economics, trickle down effect, cuts to the rich, deregulation. Let the rich get richer and the- Let the rich get richer, it'll all all trickle down. We know this doesn't work. And yet there has been a deafening silence from the left on any sort of alternative to this. And so read Michael Tomaski's piece, Bury Supply Side Economics. He sketches out uh, what he articulates as a sort of invest in middle and lower class people, let them make some decisions. This, This fiction that the private sector always makes better economic decisions than the public sector needs to be countered, needs to be dismissed and, and uh, confronted with a more affirmative story about leftist economics. An argument that uh, was not present at the Monk debates. An argument that wasn't present at the Monk debates. And it's actually not, it's never present anywhere, which is why I think the NDP and uh, the liberals really need to think about what kind of, a, of an economic message can we get out there. Duly noted. I want to duly note an amusing Twitter thread from Audra Williams. She starts, my dad used to work in the circulation department of the Toronto Star. Growing up, there were always newspapers around. I really loved it. I just moved into a new place and decided I'd like to get the star on weekends. Please go on a journey with me as I try to subscribe. And then through a series of tweets, she shows just how fucking maddening it is to just get a newspaper subscription. People can go have a look. It's pretty funny. It's pretty frustrating. And it brings up something that I think is not discussed enough through this endless debate 
of will people pay for news and won't they? And how do we save newspapers? One thing that we, we rarely discuss is just how shitty newspapers are at selling themselves. Before we even get to this question of will people pay for them or not, everything from how hard it is to unsubscribe to I, – I know why it's hard for her to get a paper subscription. The Star is now really, really trying to get people on digital. Their whole new plan is through Star Metro to go national. And if they get people digital, they can kind of build their own kind of Facebook. The, the data is where the money is at. So they just want you digital, even like for some cost. It, it's more important that they just get you on their platform. But if you look at the execution of it, it's just like – it's a fucking hodgepodge from a marketing perspective. It's like, you'll get the Wall Street Journal, you'll get Bloomberg, you'll get iPolitics, it's the Toronto Star, it's digital, paper's over here if you want it, but don't buy that. It's called Star Metro in many cities. And, and like the star is hated in a lot of cities of Canada. The idea that the Toronto Star is now your local newspaper, like right right off the bat, that was a shitty branding They decision. call it the Toronto Red Star in Lethbridge. The Toronto Red Star in Lethbridge, yeah. Yeah, they're aware of it in Lethbridge. Like, I don't know Lethbridge's newspaper, but they know they know the Toronto Star and they don't like it. So if you did any minimal amount of market research as to like what is going to get people to subscribe to a news platform, associating it with the Toronto Star is probably a very bad, like, it's just bad idea after bad idea and they're never held accountable. It's always, the blame is always placed on the newsreader, that the newsreader just wants it for free. The newsreader, newsreaders, I think, can be swayed to support them if you if you actually present to them a you know user friendly case for you know an affordable. It's journalism. Here it is. You need it. They'll buy it. Stop fucking it up. Don't make it so complicated. Make it easier for us. Duly noted, Jesse. Okay, so the last thing I want to discuss with you, Ira, is Ontario Proud. Ontario Proud, uh, Jeff Ballingall, who is the former uh, navigator guy and Conservative Party, I don't know, affiliate operative, who started this Ontario Proud, I don't know, lobby group, Facebook page, uh, shitposting site. He came on the show and talked about what he was up to. And he swore up and down that it was just about critiquing Kathleen Wynne's liberals and that it was not about furthering the Conservative Party in some sort of a partisan specific in the tank way. And so, yeah, I know people uh, at Queen's Park, in the NDP, in, uh, in, the, in the premier's office, everywhere. But it's not some sort of big effort. Um, it's just me doing what I'm doing and it's a product I'm selling and people like it. So we're not going to find out down the line that there's some communication or relationship between you and any other campaign or that they're somehow pulling strings behind this or, or f- funding it in any kind of way. I'm friends with people. Uh, I know people at Queen's Park from my own personal relationships and having worked in politics. But no, like there's no like there's no collusion. Uh, there's nothing like that at all whatsoever. I'm free to do whatever I want and I do whatever I want. So that was some time ago before the Ontario provincial election. Now they're aiming for Trudeau. And according to a Canadian press story by Joan Bryden, which appeared in The Star and all over the press, Ontario Proud was instrumental in taking down Ontario liberals. Now they're aiming for Trudeau. The headline right off the bat was kind of an eyebrow raiser for me. They were instrumental in taking down the Ontario Liberals. Right. There was a there were a lot of factors at play in that election. And uh, to sort of signal out that one, Ontario Proud as is, is instrumental, is perhaps a stretch. Yeah. And it actually gives too much credit for their own hyperbole because, you know, Ontario Proud, after Doug Ford won, sent out a, a victory update to supporters where Ballingall uh, boasted that their Facebook content was viewed almost 67 million times, more interactions than the Facebook pages of all three main parties, their leaders and the unions, advocacy groups, everything else combined. They, they are all powerful. From nowhere comes Ontario Proud. They are now where everybody gets their information. It was just ludicrous hyperbole to me and, you know, doesn't take into account the way in which Ontario Ontario Proud operates, which is like, do you like maple syrup? Hit like. that. They count that. And then once they've got you, they're just feeding you messages all the time. And the messages are often very low value, divisive, emotional, or just or just silly banal things just to kind of get you in the door. I totally agree. But I also think that people need to 
people should visit this site. They should they should pay attention to it. And one of the major, you know, arguments that the major rationale for having Bannon at the Monk debate was to uh, serve this intelligence gathering function that we need to see how he's thinking and how he's operating. And there's something really important about this. And I think that we already know what Bannon thinks, but a lot of people don't know perhaps what Ontario Proud is up to and how they're operating. And I think that we should take very seriously that Facebook site. And and it will strike many people as ridiculous, as like sort of obviously preposterous. But something's working. There's a recipe that's working there and we need to pay more closer attention to it. Oh, don't get me wrong. I mean, we were, I think, the first or among the first to take them seriously enough. Like, no, you know, this is media and the numbers they're doing are huge. And they understand their messages are often very dumb, but their sophistication with social media uh, is pretty, it's pretty sophisticated. Sorry. But yeah, it is. And we had Jeff here to talk about that. And we've been looking at them and other groups like them ever since. So they're a factor for sure. And, uh, you know, their whole methodology is really interesting to me and they're going retail, you know, like they're, they're going for people who don't read the news. That's interesting to me. We're seeing on the left, North 99, trying to do the same thing on the left that's popping up. So we're watching that space, you know, it needs to be watched. And yet, you know, journalist John Michael McGrath was on Twitter and he was pointing out like, like there is a danger to taking these guys too seriously, which is, it's just a mirror reflection of when the right spins these crazy conspiracy yarns about George Soros and the lobby groups and the special interests. And a lot of it is code word for anti-Semitic tropes. And that it's not about people voting. It's about these shady interests pulling the strings. I think Ontario Proud appeals to people's shittier sides and, it, and it's divisive and it's pretty dumb, but it gets back to the first thing we we're talking about. It's like, let's blame it on Russian interference. Let's blame it on Ontario Proud. Let's, let's look at everything but the fact that the system isn't working for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I think that that's that you've made a great point. The system is not working for a lot of people. The Facebook memes and the debates and how, however we're engaging people and engaging people as ideas is ultimately, I think, less significant than the material drivers of this force, yeah. the, the material drivers of the fact that people aren't are, are suffering. And that's, of course, on top of a sort of superstructure of uh, xenophobia and racism and so on. That's always there, but it's, it gets exacerbated and peaked at certain moments when, when people are really feeling the crunch. My question about Ontario Proud is, is where's the money coming from? That's a very good question. We're going to find out soon. The, the disclosures are about to happen, and we're following that very closely because they have said that – they said contradictory things. They've said, we're here for the people who are not really like you know your usual political diehards. They don't care so much about politics. They're not even newsreaders. We're trying to engage people in the process. And then they also say, oh, we're funded by our readers. Right. I'm like, how is that person who like – it's a stretch to even get them to vote. How are they funding this whole thing? And I'm reasonably certain that the, I mean, we already know that Balangal, I think, misrepresented himself in the way that he presented Ontario Proud as as just, hey, we're just another voice in the political mix here. We have no party affiliation. I think that we're learning now that that's not accurate. It was it was kind of questionable at the time. But, you know, you can have your suspicions. I want the facts. I want to know who is funding this thing. Where's the money coming from? You can. Yeah, it's, a, it's important that we don't fall into our own conspiracy theories, as you just, the point that you made a minute ago. But it would be interesting to at least get the facts on this and understand where the money's coming from, uh, who's behind it. You know, it's also interesting that under the Canada Elections Act, this group would, as I understand it, be defined as a um, third party that claims that it is grassroots, not-for-profit, and nonpartisan. Yeah. Now, I'm sure that there are legal definitions of, of all these things that, that will come into play, but in what universe is Ontario Proud nonpartisan? Yeah. I mean, do we actually have to accept this this fiction that they're not an instrument of one of the parties? And I mean, regardless of whether or not you can prove some sort of collusion or communication, you don't have to have any communication, right? They're on a side. I mean, that's laughable on, on its face. Now, about those connections, we're going to find out. They have been aggressively 
threatening litigation on Twitter towards anyone who is uh, inferring these things and saying these things. It's ludicrous. And I, I'm, I'm increasingly seeing this threat of defamation lawsuits being used just to, just to, to shut down. You know, it's not even like you have to send a notice anymore, as we did to us. You, you know, you get your lawyer to issue a tweet saying, remove that tweet or I'll sue you. Most people will just remove it. We want to know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think we, we should get to the bottom of it. Ira, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. That is your Canada Land Shortcuts. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Ira, where can people find you? Walrus, walrus.ca. Go check out some stories. Good journalism up there. Our website is canadalandshow.com. I want you to know that the next episode of Thunder Bay will be published on Monday, as will another episode of Canada Land. This episode was produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. This is crowdfunding month. There's a week of it left. Now is the time. Please support us at patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures, and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get. For just $2 a month, that is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.